there's a story uh, told by Chan Gailey. I don't know if y'all remember him. He was, he was actually Cowboys head coach for a couple of years and really journeyman coach at a lot of different places. One time, I think it was Division II Troy State, which is in Alabama. He was there, and they had had a great season, really turned things around. And Chan Gailey was preparing his team to prepare in their national championship game. So very proud of his accomplishments that year. And he was headed out to the practice field uh, for one of their practices to get the team ready for this title game. And while he was on his way to the practice facility, he was kind of miffed because one of the secretaries called out to him and said, hey, you've got a phone call. And I mean, he's thinking, really? Phone call? Can't this wait? I've got to get my team ready. And she said uh, to him, she said, well, it's Sports Illustrated. I thought you might want to take this one. So he's like, okay. So he turned around and he got kind of excited and he was thinking, you know, it's about time we got some you know, national recognition and cool, they're going to do a story on us. And I don't know that you could tell the story of our turnaround in just three pages, but still it'd be great. And then he started thinking, you know, I wonder what kind of pictures they're going to put in. If they take a picture of me for the article, should it be like some sort of action, you know, coaching photo, or maybe I'm at my desk kind of contemplating strategy or something. He's thinking through all this stuff. Finally gets back to the offices and goes in to take the phone call, picks up the phone and says, uh, this is Chan Gailey, and the person on the other side, this is Christy from Sports Illustrated. I am calling to tell you your subscription has expired. Would you like, <laughs> would you like to renew? Yeah. Life has a way of doing that to us sometimes. Um, he says, kind of the moral of the story for him, was you in life, either you either humble yourself or you get humbled. And that really is kind of the way it it works in life. And this morning, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, and I'm going to say up front, this is a really, this is a satisfying story. This is a story that ends, and you're like, yes, that's the way we want our stories to end. This arrogant, prideful king gets what's coming to him, and God's humble servant is promoted and exalted at the end of the story. It just feels good. Uh, It's, more importantly, a story about a believer living in Babylon and how Daniel did that, how he went about his business of living in a foreign place. But Scripture reminds us, beginning to end, that we were not designed to call this place home. Peter writes to believers in the first century and says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, I warn you to keep away from worldly desires which wage war against your very souls. I mean, that is some strong language. Waging war against our very souls. I mean, would you say in Dallas, Texas, 2018 that there are forces around us waging war against our very souls. You bet there are. Yes. And to resist them, that's to live as a foreigner. That's to recognize this world is not my home. I like what Trevin Wax said recently. He said, we should never feel perfectly at home 
in any country, no matter how much we love where God has planted us. We should always feel out of place, that things are not quite right here. The Christian should never feel at home in this world. If we do, there's a problem. The Christian should never feel at home in this world. I like that line. If we do, there's a problem. So David, or rather Daniel, I'm sorry, had zero confusion about this point. He knew that he was a foreigner. He had had to learn the language of the land, the customs of the land, the literature of the land. He knew that Babylon did not share his values. He knew that the culture around him was out of alignment with his faith convictions and his morals. But he did not run off to live out the remainder of his days in a cave somewhere or a monastery. No. He chose to bloom where he was planted. He chose to be faithful to God in Babylon. In fact, Daniel understood that Babylon needed him. Chapter 5. An arrogant king throws a massive party there in the capital city of Babylon. By the way, it would be hard not to be a little arrogant not to be a little prideful if you were the king of Babylon. I mean, all you had to do was look out your window, the windows of the palace into that magnificent city, which one modern author who wrote a history of Babylon called the greatest city the world has ever known. Hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Euphrates River channeled to run through the city and water the magnificent gardens and, and, and plant life around the city, uh, a, a gigantic ziggurat, a temple standing in the middle uh, of Babylon, Herodotus, a Greek historian who was known for exaggerating things from time to time. Herodotus said the walls of the city were 350 feet tall. Probably not that tall, but impressive. Impressive city. Um, along the main avenues of the city, the walls would be lined with colorful porcelain images of lions and dragons se celebrating the power of the dynasty ruling there in Babylon. So when you know you're the man in Babylon. You're the king. It would be hard not to be proud. So this party's going on. Verse 1, wine is flowing. Thousand invited guests are there. And, and, Babel, and Belshazzar has this idea to kind of keep the party rolling. He says, hey, somebody, go and fetch the relics, the goblets and the cups that, that my ancestor Nebuchadnezzar stole out of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and bring them in. And so some servants went and collected those, those goblets and, and, and Belshazzar had those distributed there among the guests and said, let's drink wine and, and, and propose toasts to our gods, the gods of Babylon, the gods of gold and silver and stone and wood. And so they drank. He and his guests and his wives and public officials and even his concubines were drinking toasts from these sacred relics. And then I want you to just try to, try to imagine it. 
try to imagine the chilling scene that reigned on this parade. Party is wild, it's, it's rolling, it's loud, it's drunken, verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a person's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. King Belshazzar watched the hand as it wrote. King Belshazzar was very frightened. His face turned white. His knees knocked together. He could not stand because his legs were too weak. The king called for the magicians, the wise men, the wizards of Babylon, said to them, anyone who can read this writing and explain it will receive purple clothes fit for a king, a gold chain around his neck. I will make that person the third highest ruler in the kingdom. A little detail we'll talk about in a minute. The third highest person in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing and tell the king what it meant. King Belshazzar became even more afraid. His face became even wider, and the royal guests were confused. I mean, what is going on? What is the meaning of this? I mean, you talk about sheer, unadulterated terror. My guess is you have never been this afraid in your life. I mean, the text, the Hebrew text is actually stronger than what we have in the English translations. The Hebrew text suggests that the king was so beside himself with fear that he lost control of his bowels, that he soiled himself. And if you're reading along with an American Standard Version or a King James, this is what you have there. It says that his, quote, his loins were loosened... Hmm. Yeah. And here's what's even more scary, because he's terrified when the hand starts writing on the wall. At the end of the story, he is, quote, even more afraid. Why? Because he's gotten this message from the other side. An otherworldly communique, a message from the gods, and he has no idea what it means. Somebody help me. Why, why didn't they call Daniel to start with? Why did they start with every other wise man and wizard in the empire? Well, it's pretty obvious. I mean, that would have been awkward. Call Daniel. Daniel was what? Daniel was a Jew. What had they been doing? They'd been offering toast to their pagan gods and having a grand time mocking the God of the Jews with these holy relics from Jerusalem. So no, you're not going to call Daniel first. But eventually, the queen proposed, and this is probably the queen mother, the, the mother of his father, Nabonidus. The queen mother said, we better call Daniel. The most insightful person in the kingdom when it comes to visions and dreams and messages from beyond. And so they bring in Daniel to help solve this mystery. Now, before we get to that, though, 
I do want to talk about a little bit of history here. It's interesting. This is one of those stories in the Bible that for a long time was seen as being evidence that the Bible contained historical inaccuracies because we had no archaeological evidence, no historical evidence for this person, King Belshazzar. And then in 1854, archaeologists uncovered a cylinder covered with cuneiform writing from this time, and there was a prayer on the cylinder, and the prayer was by King Nabonidus for his son. You guessed it. His son, Belshazzar. So this guy was a real person. And and what happened was King Nabonidus, historically, very interesting guy, very absent as a king. Um, He was very interested in for one thing, archaeology loved to dig up. I mean, at this point, we think this is the ancient world, all right? At this point, Babylon already had a couple thousand years of, of you know, Mesopotamian history, and so he was very interested in excavating and digging up relics. And In fact, uh, King Nabonidus' big thing was the moon god, a god named Sin. And he went around and he would would dig the ruins of these synagogue temples and actually rebuild them. At one point, he as king was away from the capital city, was away from Babylon for 10 consecutive years. So he didn't do a whole lot of kinging. Belshazzar was his co-regent. Belshazzar was king while dad was off on his digs. And another little sideline, Nabonidus wasn't real popular with the clergy there in Babylon because the chief god of Babylon, we talked about this well back, was Marduk, not Sin, not the moon god. So they didn't really like him that much to start with. But Belshazzar is reigning. And this explains, by the way, why in the text you get this weird phrase, hey, I'll offer whoever solves the mystery the third highest job in Babylon. I mean, you would think the king would say the second, the number two, be my lieutenant. But he didn't have that job to offer. His dad was number one, he was number two. The best he could do was give you the third job in the kingdom. And so that's what King Belshazzar offered. Daniel came in, verse 17. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. As a believer in Babylon, Daniel understood... I serve a greater king. I represent God. He knew, however, dangerous this might be, walking into the royal court, giving an interpretation that may not be something the king wants to hear. However dangerous that might be, his responsibility as a believer in Babylon was, I think the phrase is, was to speak truth to power. So that's what he was going to do. Now, before interpreting the the specific vision that was before him, he gave King Belshazzar a bit of a pointed history lesson. King, remember your ancestor Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in recent history, magnificent and powerful Nebuchadnezzar. How glorious was he? But you remember King Belshazzar. What happened to him? He became so prideful, so consumed with himself that God humbled him. God brought him down a few notches. Remember how your ancestor Nebuchadnezzar had his mental faculties taken away. He became like an animal for a time. 
would actually roam around on his hands and knees, grazing on the grass around the temple grounds like a wild donkey or a cow. Remember that about, about Nebuchadnezzar? And remember how only when he finally acknowledged the supremacy of God was his sanity restored. So he gives this history lesson, and then Daniel continues with the specifics of this moment. Verse 22, You, his son Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Scathing rebuke, but completely true. Anyone who was at this party knew these words are true. This is not a guy who's honoring God. This is a guy who's pretty full of himself. But Daniel reminds everyone there is no one above the Lord. There is no billionaire. There is no celebrity. There is no president or potentate above the Lord. Everyone answers to him. God gets the last word. And Daniel's not being mean here. He's not throwing shade on Belshazzar. He is speaking the truth. And then he turns toward that handwriting and he says, let's talk about this message from God to you. Meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. Let's start with meeny, meeny. Meeny means God has numbered your days in power and that your time in office has come to an end. Verse 26, basically God is telling you, you're through. Game over. Tekel. Tekel means, verse 27, that God has weighed you on the scales and found you wanting. In other words, God has found you to be of no account. You are a lightweight. <laughs> meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. Parson, this means that the Medes and Persians are about to take the kingdom away from you. Now, props to Belshazzar. He comes through, immediately promotes Daniel to the third highest position in the kingdom. But within 24 hours, Belshazzar is dead and the kingdom is now in Persian hands. By the way, interesting thing about this particular story in Daniel 5, we can be reasonably sure that the date this happened was on October 12, 539 B.C. because we know that's the date that Babylon fell to the Persians. So probably all of chapter 5, right here on October 12, 539 B.C. Now the story, it's a good story. This is the kind of story we grab hold of because the wicked king gets what's coming to him. Daniel, servant of God, is elevated in the story. 
But in the here and now, right, we know that not all situations get this kind of closure. Not all stories get wrapped up with a bow like this one, but in the end, the story reminds us that in the end, God will make all things right. To those wondering, why does evil seem to prosper? Why do the bad guys so often seem to get away with it? Paul gives us a reminder he says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Read this with me if you would. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Don't be confused. Don't look around and say, What's going on? This is a promise you can count on. God's going to make it right. Nobody is going to get away with anything. Belshazzar here, partying, living it up, making fun of Israel's God, and his days are numbered. Meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. There is a time of reckoning, and it has arrived. So on your outline, write this down. This, this just brings me some hope living in this world. Rest assured, God will make all things right. God will make all things right. And here's Daniel, you know. Even though he lives in this strange and foreign place, he serves, he solves problems, he speaks truth. He knows that God will use him where he is in that time, in that place, to influence the culture around him. And here we are, here you are, Right? We're children of the King. United States of America, 2018. And we do a disservice to our nation, our culture, when we check our faith at the door. When we silence our voices for God. And I know there are forces at work waging war against us, telling us, your faith, it is a private matter. Your beliefs, this whole God stuff, this is not to be brought into the public sphere. That would be inappropriate. Look, Daniel lived in Babylon. But he knew who he was. He knew whose he was. And he would not be silent. And I love this in the story. He's not disrespectful. He's not trying to throw insults or anything like that. In fact, in the story, he is invited into the halls of power to speak wisdom and truth. Babylon needed his faith perspective. America. America is a great nation. We are a free people. We are blessed to live in a land where the rights of people are guaranteed. Not just the rights of the rich and the powerful and the well-connected and the majority, but the rights of people are guaranteed. At the same time, this is not our home. In Peter's words, we are... Temporary residence. 
We are foreigners. Let's pray that the Lord will raise up Daniels. That he will raise up a generation that will create arts and music to the glory of God. That will contribute to scholarship for the glory of God. That will lead in science and technology and medicine to the glory of God. That will represent Him in the halls of power to His glory. Let's pray for God to to raise up a nation of Daniels. Who will speak for Him. Who will represent Him and who will bless and influence the culture around them. Lord Jonathan Sachs is the leading Orthodox rabbi in the UK, um, knighted by the Queen. He wrote an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal recently, and he was talking about um, people were wondering, what's going on in the news? There were a lot of stories about young people just doing crazy things, violent things. Just Why are they doing these self-destructive and generally otherwise destructive behaviors? And Jonathan Sachs wrote this piece about how free enterprise, capitalism, and democracy are now, over the last two, three hundred years in the Western world, being untethered from spirituality, being untethered from their roots in faith, and that now we're trying to use these mechanisms of capitalism and and democracy while keeping God on the outside. And 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 he wrote about, there are consequences to that. He wrote this. This was the bursting of a dam, of potential trouble that had been building for years. The collapse of families and communities leaves in its wake unsocialized young people who are the products of a tsunami of wishful thinking that washed across the West saying that you can have sex without the responsibility of marriage. Children without the responsibility of parenthood. Social order without the responsibility of citizenship. Liberty without the responsibility of morality. And self-esteem without the responsibility of hard work and earned achievement. Hmm. You have influence. Every disciple of Jesus has influence in your office, in your home, in your school, on your team, places big and small, the halls of Congress or the halls of your high school. You have influence. Use your influence for His glory. Use your life to point to God, to point to a better king and a better kingdom. Remember, though, And I think this is so important. Your motivation is love. We are moved by the love of God. Remember that most famous scripture of the New Testament, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. God loves this place, this broken, messed up world. In fact, He loved it enough to send His Son. 
And we too are motivated to engage this world because of His love. And when we love people, it doesn't mean they're going to agree with everything we think. But if they know we love them, they'll listen. They'll pay attention. We best influence the world when we are moved not by fear, not by anger, but when we're moved by the love of God. So finally, two reminders quickly. The first one, talked about this in the beginning this morning, I will humble myself or God will do that for me. I will humble myself or God will do that for me. Like the coach said, either you are humble or you will be humbled. Love the story of the champ, the self-titled greatest, Muhammad Ali, heavyweight champ of the world, who one time at the height of his success and fame was traveling from point A to point B. He was on an airplane up in first class, of course, and the announcement came on for everyone to fasten their seatbelts. The flight attendant noticed that the champ's seatbelt was not fastened, and she said, Sir, we can't take off until you fasten your seatbelt. And he looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> we humble ourselves. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus brought the Lord's Supper into our community. Every week as we gather and we pass the elements, we have these tangible reminders that we are sinners without a hope except the blood of Jesus. And so, as we celebrate the supper each morning, we are reminded that we're saved by grace. And our hearts are to overfill with gratefulness and humility, not pride. Well, Daniel, this is another thing about this story. I want you to write this down. Second reminder, we'll finish with this. There's far more to knowing God or just generally being a mature human being than just knowing the right things or having the right knowledge. And Daniel, in the story, he goes through this history lesson with Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar, stuff that Belshazzar would have known... But it's stuff that didn't change Belshazzar at all. And so Daniel sums it up by saying in verse 22, And you, his son Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you what? Though you knew all this. There's a lot of truth in that. It is better to know a little truth and be changed by that than to possess all truth and remain unchanged. It means nothing to have the right doctrine and the right beliefs and have a wrong life. Right? Paul said this one time, this church in Corinth that struggled with pride, a very gifted congregation if you showed up at their church on Sunday morning, you would see miracles all around you. Very impressive. And they were very proud of themselves. And he told them there in chapter 8, verse 1, he said, We know that we all possess knowledge. 
Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Having the right information and the right beliefs is no proof of spiritual maturity. It's good. It's good, but it's no proof. Of sp- we are to be changed by the truth we know. And so as we finish our time, I would just ask you this. Do you see some handwriting on the wall this morning? Is God delivering a message to you today? And maybe it's a message to deal with that sin that you have been refusing to deal with. That today is the day. Come clean, confess, ask for help. Maybe today is the day that you you confess to God, I'm sorry, I have kept my faith in the closet, been quiet about it. I pray, Lord, that 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 message today that you've written for me will help me to freely and naturally and lovingly share my faith, my story, my convictions with those around me. Maybe this, this morning, it's the handwriting on the wall is, is to surrender your life to a better king and a better kingdom. To put on Christ this morning in baptism, being immersed into his death, burial, and resurrection to, to live a new life under his lordship, under his authority, fueled by his spirit. You can do that today as we respond, standing and singing together.